Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I've just had a really enjoyable chat with Chris Murray. Chris is the CEO of Energy Power, who are the Australian distributors for CAP products, and they supply bulldozers and other heavy equipment to the mining and civil construction industry. He's always been attracted to engineering, and even as a teenager, he was always tinkering with cars and boats. Chris now has over 30 years experience in the energy, renewables, and resources sectors, and knows from these male-dominated industries how difficult it can be to have men open up and talk about their struggles. He was so determined to build a caring culture that he and his team recently launched the new values for the organization and made the number one value S for safety and well-being, first and always. Chris also shares that he's had the misfortune to attend three separate funerals for men who had taken their own lives, and he knows the devastating impact that can have on families and workplaces. He would have loved to have the opportunity to ask those three men who took their lives if anything could have been done to prevent it. He also shares that a few years ago, he was diagnosed with leukemia, faced his mortality, and then through recovery, found his life changed forever. He was a non-executive director for the Leukemia Foundation for seven years and got huge fulfillment from that. Chris also had the good fortune to attend the Harvard Business School and complete an advanced management program where he learned how great teams can solve complex problems. It was great hearing about the quest Chris is on to build more caring and resilient teams in what is still considered quite a blokey industry. Enjoy. Welcome to the Caring CEO podcast. Chris, it's great to have you on here. Graham, thanks for that, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Chris, what does care in the workplace mean to you? To me, it means that we'll put the safety and well-being of our team members and the broader team that our business works with first and always. And you've even incorporated that into your values, as I recall. During COVID, we reviewed the values of our business and we came up with a new set of values um, and they go by the acronym of SHAPE. And the first one is safety and wellbeing first and always, and then honesty, accountability, performance and engagement. And we're very, very, very prominent and consistent in the business of emphasising that first value, safety and well-being. Yeah, fantastic. And just for the purpose of our uh, listeners, could you just give a brief overview of what got you to this point in your career? Very briefly, I started my career as a mechanical engineer with the Electricity Commission of New South Wales, um, and I've continued an energy theme through that. Um, but I ran a small consulting and contracting business for about 10 years after I left the Electricity Commission of New South Wales um, and then decided that I really liked working with larger teams and leading people rather than doing all the uh, calculation work myself. I think I'm a better leader and manager than I am an engineer. So I then sought out a career in larger businesses and I went to a large Australian um, independent power producer, Energy Developments, where I spent 11 years 
and then subsequently left there and went on to lead a couple of small businesses, um, again, associated with technology development and with renewable energy, um, and ended up in the role that I'm in now, which is Managing Director and Dealer Principal of Energy Power Systems Australia. And we are the CAT um, dealer for engines and generation for Australia, the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. And CAT is Caterpillar, right? So you're talking about large equipment used in mines and those types of areas? Yeah, CAT is a brand of Caterpillar. Mm -hmm. um, Caterpillar Inc. is based in the US, a very large uh, company, turnover of 60-odd billion dollars and 100,000 people. And one of their brands and the best-known one is CAT. So you would be familiar with CAT bulldozers and CAT construction equipment. Um, mm -hmm. We actually sell the engines that go into that equipment and into other equipment, and we sell generators that generate electricity. And generally, it is pretty large. So we might sell a generator that, it, that a, uh, a construction company uses on a construction site right up to a very large power station that powers an off-grid mine. Yeah, and it's typically an industry where there are lots of issues because people are working remotely. Uh, often they're involved with FIFO, and I, I expect that there's, you know, some mental health challenges you experience or come in contact with your people, come in contact with on mining sites, etc. There's a couple of challenges with the business, and you're right. Firstly, a lot of the mining work is remote, so we would often have staff um, living in a mining camp and working fly-in, fly-out. Uh, and also our business is spread right around Australia. So we have quite a lot of branches. We've got 10 branches in Australia and some of them are quite small. So it's not easy for senior leaders to get to those branches on a regular basis and to help develop behaviours and culture. So there's a lot of challenges and that, those things lead to the potential for mental health issues. And how do you actually try to build that connection with these remote staff when it's quite difficult to get to see them physically? COVID has really shown us how difficult it is to build culture and to care for people's mental health when you can't do those face-to-face -face visits. Mm. So pre-COVID, we would make sure that senior leaders in the business did visit all of those remote branches and sites on a, on a fairly regular and routine basis. And I think there's no substitute for those personal visits. But we would also um, make sure that there are regular team meetings in each of the business units. We've got very good telecommunications or video facilities in all of our branches. So we would make sure that there's very regular team calls. Mm -hmm. And then a as a corporate, we would run quarterly at, at the outside, quarterly all in town hall meetings to provide communication to people. During COVID, when we couldn't get around to the sites, we tried to make all of those activities, the team calls and the corporate all-in-town hall calls, we tried to do them more regularly. And we also did a pretty regular email message out to all staff from the CEO. So we just upped the ante of our communications. But even with all that, Graham, we still saw um, you know, an increase in mental health issues at some of those sites. Yeah, and uh, we, you know, were fortunate to work with your organisation in terms of rolling out some programs for champions, mental health champions across the group. And you, as you introduced it, shared something. You mentioned about three funerals that you've been to. Would you mind just sort of uh, saying a little bit about that? One of the reasons that I'm so 
interested and passionate about mental health is that during my lifetime, I've been to the funerals of three men that committed suicide. Mm. Um, all of those men and the suicides had different causes and they all had different circumstances, but there were three things that were really common amongst them. The first was that they all had families who loved them. Mm. The second was that they all had friends who cared for them. And the third thing that was common is that they all left shattered lives. And, and regrettably, I would say that some of the people impacted by those deaths never recovered. Yeah. So yeah. You, you just wonder what could have been done to prevent that. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it? And looking from the outside, people would think, you know, he had everything to live for. And yet when you're in that despair, and I've, I've had that firsthand experience of feeling that despair, you really believe there's no hope. You really believe that... Um, you know, you're almost doing your family a favour by by doing this. And it's so uh, far from the truth, but I know from personal experience that when you're in that place, you, you believe it and it is insane thinking. So how is those horrible experiences, what do you think is the key for men in Australia and particularly men working remote places? Because I suspect that you have a heavily weighted male population in your organisation. Is, is that correct? It is. About 75% um, of our workforce, a little bit more actually, are men. Um, and it would be even higher when we talk about the remote locations and the technicians that are involved in the business. Yeah. And, and what do you think, uh, you know, can be done to help create that sense of connection with those people that are working remotely. You've mentioned about all the things that you've done and tried during COVID and, you know, there's obviously been some great initiatives there. Is there any other new areas that you think can be explored or expanded on that would, would help to build, I guess, a, a more of a sense of or greater connection and yep. uh, greater care? Do you have any thoughts about how that could evolve further? Firstly, I wish I had the perfect answer, um, but I don't. As an organisation, we've introduced a lot of things, which I'm happy to, to tell you about, but, but we're still not perfect. We still have people that have mental health issues. So we think in our organisation that really enabling conversations, in fact, more um, facilitating those conversations and encouraging people to have conversations with not just their leaders but with others in the business is really important. So you mentioned the We Care Champions program that you've helped us with. Mm. We, we had people trained um, by your organisation to be We Care Champions, to be able to listen to people when they have mental health issues. Um, they listen to them confidentially and they don't act as counsellors for them but they provide them the options and they provide them a sounding board so they can be a, a port of call where a person thinks that they can't actually talk to their boss or to HR or to someone else in the business. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a great initiative and certainly we've had a great uptake on that. Secondly, we, we just want to encourage people to reach out to their colleagues. So we're really encouraging people in the business to take the time to reach out and check, are you okay? And we participated in the Are You OK initiative, which I know that you're part of, Graham, and I think is fantastic. But I think it's really important that if you know somebody in your team or in another team, that you reach out and have a discussion with them. I know personally that you can feel much better when someone calls you and says, look, I know you've had a bad day. Do you want to talk about it? Or even just has a talk to you about the footy, knowing you've had a bad day. 
So we're trying to encourage those personal discussions. And they're not easy to have, Graham, because as as middle-aged men, particularly coming up in the industry that I've grown up in, it can be seen as a weakness to show that sort of softness. So the discussions aren't easy to have. But I've found that as I have more and more of those discussions, it gets easier for me and easier for the people I'm talking to. Yeah, and I think you raised some great points and examples there is having that informal support, you know, and, and I guess with the, you know, the WeCare champions, they become like a mental health concierge. They can guide people. They can suggest they call the AP. They can encourage them to see their GP. They can provide that sort of guidance. And, and one of the things that, really opened my eyes to this informal support was watching a TED video by um, an Indian psychiatrist. And he was trained as in psychiatry in the UK and then came back to India and just knew that they didn't have the level of mental health training or even budget to do these things. But what he sought out to do was to provide just basics on how to provide support and care. And he trained illiterate villagers on how to support those people around them. And I think it's just been a, um, a fantastic example that he now gets comparable results as highly resourced first world organisations by having these uh, caring villagers and peers that know how to support people and encourage them and uh, and and hold on to hope sort of thing. So it was really just seeing that that really opened my eyes to this potential because when you think about it, organisations are nothing more than lots and lots of little villages, you know, depending on the size. And, um, you know, if there's someone there that you trust and you respect, uh, you're much more open to be able to guide them. So uh, I think that's a, a great example of, of building that peer support and social connection across the group. During COVID, because a lot about three quarters of our, no, sorry, 75% of our staff are based in Victoria. So we've certainly seen a great deal more difficulty in maintaining those contacts because you don't get the, the contact with someone and the casual conversation around the coffee machine at work. Mm. So I think that it's, it's really important um, in times when you can't get the face-to-face contact to redouble your efforts to connect with people. Mm. It's also been really difficult to build those personal relationships, even with new staff, Graham. Mm. We've got some new staff who hadn't met their boss for a year. Yeah. So they don't build those personal relationships. So you've got to really go out of your way and put the effort in to build personal relationships with people so that they feel that they can reach out and talk to you. Very much so. And you've really you know, tried to lead by example here and, and create up the right environment and to the point where, you know, you've just identified previously that, you know, safety and health is a really important um, value of uh, energy power. Chris, how do you balance a culture of care and a culture of high performance? Graham, I don't think we need to balance it. I think that if you don't care for your staff, and if you don't make safety and well-being at the forefront of your business, then I don't think that'll translate into good performance. So for me, the two of those go hand in hand. And if, if as leaders we develop a good culture, 
which has at the start of it safety and well-being of our people and our stakeholders, that'll drive good behaviours, which will drive good performance. So for me, they go hand in hand. Yeah, and when you have a, you know, with your leadership team, what do you strive for there to have the right dynamic, the right norms across the group? I really like in my leadership team to have uh, people that are very transparent. So I like us to be able to share our challenges and our victories with one another on a very transparent basis. And when challenges come up, whether those challenges to be are to do with a job or to do with stress in the business, I want to feel that my management team with me and in turn theirs with them can openly discuss those issues and challenges in the business so that they don't feel that they're alone. So for me, that's a key thing. I want a management team that is very open with one another, no secrets, willing to support one another. Yeah, and, and that's often known or termed as psychological safety where people can, you know, be honest, share their insights, be themselves, take moderate risks, have each other's back. And and yet it's quite fragile as well, isn't it? You know, it uh, takes a long time to build up, but it can be broken down very quickly. It does take a lot of effort. I've been in the business I'm in now for two and a half years, and I really don't think that we develop that sort of um that sort of culture in the management team for about two years. There were some new people came in. You need to build relationships with them. Of course, during that period, we weren't in the office. But now we've got a team that is very tight where we understand enough about each other's personal challenges, who's got kids who may need to do homeschooling, et cetera, that we can genuinely support each other. But early in my career, I learned that leadership based on fear and favoritism, it is very bad leadership and doesn't lead to good performance. So that's the last thing I want to see in any business that I'm associated with. Yeah, when you reflect on your career, who have been the mentors that have really helped shape your view on leadership and high team performance? There's a few that have shaped it by showing me, I think, what not to do. I mentioned that mm. um, I'd had some leaders that really relied on fear and favouritism and what I found there, even though I'm a fairly confident person, was that that reduced my confidence it reduced my ability to lead my team. So I realised that that's not a leadership style that I like. But I've also worked with some leaders who were really clear with the objectives that we had to achieve and that did want to hold me to account for those objectives. But that said, they were very supportive. So I always felt that I could take challenges and issues to them. They were also leaders that were focused on me helping develop my career. So I was lucky enough um, at, in one of my roles where my manager, who was the managing director, was happy for me to be sponsored to go to a, an advanced management program in the US. And that was a huge commitment for the company. But he was showing that he had faith in what I could do and that he would back me to increase my leadership abilities. Yeah, I think that was at Harvard Business School, right? Yeah, it was. It was the advanced management program at, at Harvard. I did it in 2008. It was a great experience. And what did you take away from that? What did you bring back that you didn't really have before? Uh, look, I think the, the program gives you a great toolkit to use in any business situation. Um, firstly, you meet some fantastic colleagues. There were 70 or 80 people on the course from all around the world. So you meet a lot of people and you learn from them. But, but it, it does give you a lot of tools that you can use. Some of them are analytical some of them are more leadership. In fact, a, a big focus was leadership, tools that you can use, and it gives you a quiet confidence 
that you can actually deal with any situation that comes up. Yeah. Yep. And it works very much on case studies, as I understand it. Each day you're doing a new case study, different industry, but there's a, I guess, a process you move through to help address it. Is that, is that how it operates? The first week is, is covering the basics, covers accounting 101 and a few other principles. But then the remaining seven weeks of that course, similar actually to a Harvard MBA, are based on case studies. And they're one, they're run by professors who generally have great industry experience. Mm. Um, so it's very intense. You uh, you spend a lot of time every day researching for the case studies because they'll cold call you during the uh, during the lectures to see if you've read the case study the night before. So you need to put a lot of effort in, but it's very rewarding. And I think having those actual case studies based on real life examples brings the learning to life. Mm-hmm. They also, you know, it was a privilege also because they would bring in some of the leaders of the businesses that the case studies were written about. So it was a real privilege to hear those senior leaders and very successful business people speaking about the case studies that have been written about them. Yeah, one of my previous interviewees, uh, Emma Hogan, she's the secretary, aka CEO of the New South Wales Department of Customer Service. She did that uh, course as well, and she described it as uh, very transformative. She previously focused on senior HR roles and customer experience roles, but uh, you know, she said that just being part of that really helped you to have a mindset that um, you know you could apply principles to different industries and and also take on that uh, senior role to step up from you know a, a functional role to a CEO or managing director role. So uh, it does sound like it's um, an extraordinary opportunity to have that and uh, I can see how that would have made quite a difference to your career. The course is designed really to take uh, senior managers in a business and equip them to take on really senior leadership roles. That's the, the basis of the course. So people that attend it have already got a reasonable amount of management experience. But it does open your eyes to the fact that you don't have to know everything yourself. Mm-hmm. You can use other people in your organisation, providing you're leading them, you can use them to leverage the organisation. You don't have to do it all yourself. So there's a lot of great lessons I took out of the out of the course. Yeah, just moving on to a different subject now, Chris, I noticed that you're a or have been a non-executive director of the Leukemia Foundation. What led to you being involved with that? I was very keen to get involved in a in a health not-for-profit. I was lucky oh. enough to have a gap year in 2013 where I took a year off work. Um, and one of my uh, objectives during that year was to get involved in a not-for-profit. Um, the reason that I focused on a health not-for-profit was because uh, in 2006, I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, and I was lucky enough that not many years before, a drug had been developed which prohibits the um, spread of chronic myeloid leukemia and can actually put you in remission, and I still take that drug today, and I'm still in remission, thankfully. Um, so I realized that uh, there was so much work to be done with with health and the Organisations like the Leukemia Foundation do such a great job in supporting people that are diagnosed with blood cancers. So I really wanted to get involved in a health health not-for-profit. I felt it was a bit of giving back because I'd been so lucky that the work of people in Leukemia Foundation and research organisations had developed this drug and had got it on the Australian PBT. And I I felt I wanted to give back, and I guess a lot of people go on to not-for-profits for that. 
but I actually found that I got a lot more from it than I gave to it. It was a, a fantastic experience meeting people with blood cancers and their families and meeting the wonderful staff at the Leukemia Foundation who care for them. So I really had a passion about health and I was lucky enough to get in on the board of the Leukemia Foundation, um, which had a direct personal um, effect for me. And you mentioned you got more from it than you gave. What were some of the things that you received through that involvement? I just recall being with staff members of the Leukemia Foundation when they were talking to people that had blood cancer in their families and just seeing how they could put their own feelings aside and they could just be so empathetic with that person and provide such support to them. And a lot of that was just talking to them, just hearing about the challenges they had with their kids that had to leave their job to get the treatment and so forth. I just learned that listening and caring for people is so powerful when people are in a really vulnerable situation. Mm, yeah. And you also, I guess, had that personal experience where, you know, you received that diagnosis and that must have been very, very confronting, I'm sure. And what was, what did you learn through that experience? I, I guess you sort of confront your mortality. What else did you learn through going through that experience? Well, the first thing I learned, Graham, was don't rely on Dr. Google. Um, because <laughs> after, after consulting Dr. Google, I was diagnosed on a Friday, but didn't see the specialist till the Monday. So over the weekend, I decided that I was going to be dead in a week. Um, <laughs> so I learned not to do that. And one of my advice when I speak to people now, which I still do who were recently diagnosed is, is not to rely on Dr. Google. Um, it, it's, uh, as people know that have faced a, um, a, a potentially fatal disease, it really makes you reassess the priorities. Um, that you have in your life, and, and I was no different. Um, but one of the things that I did learn through that process and then after getting involved in Leukemia Foundation was that um, it's so helpful to be able to talk to people that have been in a similar situation. So during my journey, I had a very, very supportive family. My wife and my children and my broader family are incredibly supportive, as were my work colleagues, um, and took a real personal interest for me in particularly my boss and other work colleagues, and, and I reflect on that and know how helpful that was for me at the time. Um, but when I look back, it would have been good if I'd have been able to talk to people who were recently diagnosed. So that's something that Leukemia Foundation does, is connect people that are recently diagnosed with blood cancer with others that have been in a similar situation, because it's really great to talk to someone who's going well when they're on the same treatment you're about to have. That is a great concept, isn't it? Just to speak with someone who's travelled a path a bit in front of you, but it also just really shares hope as well. And I was involved in, when I was going through a tough time in similar help groups in the mental health area, and it was the same sort of concept that, you know, people who'd been through it were sharing insights to those that were in a thick of it. And it was a very, very hopeful thing and very credible thing when someone who's been there, you know, says that there is another side, there is another possibility that there's many, many great outcomes that could come from it. Yeah, there's nothing better than seeing somebody that who is who is recovered from the disease that you've got. Um, so on a number of occasions over the past few years, I've had the privilege of talking to people who had been recently diagnosed with either the same blood cancer that I had or indeed with other cancers and sharing my journey with them. And it's been a real privilege to be able to help them in a small way. It's something that I enjoy doing. Yeah, wonderful. 
If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to hit momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. What do you do for your own self-care? Maybe if you ask my wife, she'd say not enough, Graham. But <laughs> um, the, the things that are, our children are in their, in their 20s, they're adults, but the things that we really enjoy and that I that, that help me balance my life is certainly spending time with family. We're lucky enough that our daughters are still happy to go on holidays with us. We just had a week in Tasmania with them. So that is something that's a real joy to my life and that I, I really count as a privilege to spend time with them as adults and obviously our broader family. But we also like uh, food and wine and we like travelling with great friends to visit good food and wine um, areas and to I- enjoy that. So they're the sort of things that we do. Um, that's been a challenge during COVID, Graham, and I found yeah. that that's had an impact on on me personally in terms of managing the stress of work is not being able to get those releases of of going with some great friends to a great restaurant or to a to a new wine area. Um, so we're really looking forward to getting back into that. Yeah, I'm sure like a lot of other people. Where did you go to in Tasmania? Oh, we we did a bit of a, a whirlwind tour, Graham. So we got the spirit of Tasmania over, which was fantastic. Spent a bit of time in Launceston, Cradle Mountain, down to Hobart, and then up the east coast, Wineglass Bay, and the Bay of Fires. It was it was a great week. Yeah, I'm a, quite a keen walker, and I've done a couple of walks down there. This uh, new Three Cakes walk, which is just stunning, and it's uh, relatively close to Hobart and. I think it was um, December 2019, before the COVID began, uh, we did with a, with um, four of the mates, we did the overland track from uh, Cradle Mountain, you know, right down to the bottom yeah. there. At, uh, so it's a gorgeous, gorgeous state, isn't it? it? It's beautiful. Actually, we did the Three Capes walk in February 2020, just as COVID was starting. Ah. Um, and it was absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful part of the world. It really is. It really is. Can you think of a time when you've asked someone, are you okay, and it made a real difference? We've had a couple of people in our business who went through um, some difficult times with personal health, men, and they came to work uh, and put on a brave front. And I knew from my own experience that uh, having done that as well, that they might have not have been okay. And I was able to build a relationship with those people and help them get through in a small way, Graham, but help them get through and certainly be a sounding board for them to talk to. As I said earlier, it's not easy to ask that first question, are you okay, particularly when you know that the answer is that they might not be. But I would say it's really worthwhile. 
Mm. Um, it, it doesn't always mean the person will better get a better outcome, but you're giving them the opportunity to talk to you and to open up about whether they really are okay or not. Yeah, there's the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. I think it's very, very true. It really is. You know, you can create these um, scenarios in your own mind that aren't really that great, but somehow through talking it through with someone else it can make a, a real difference. I, I think it really helps you balance in your own mind what the real issues are when you can talk a problem through with somebody and they may have a different perspective, but just talking it through with someone that may not be your direct family I think can be a real help. Graham, it yeah. really helps you put it in perspective because sometimes you get things out of perspective in your own mind. Yeah. And can you think of a time when someone asked you, are you okay, and it made a real difference? I can. When I was first diagnosed with um, blood cancer, uh, I lived in Brisbane and my neighbour, um, Mark, had been through some health challenges himself. And I just started my treatment and he, we were very good friends, but one day he came over and said, Chris, are you really okay? And I opened up to him about the things I was feeling. So he didn't ask it as you would in the street where you say, how are you going? He said, Chris, are you really okay? And that made a big difference to me at that stage in my life. So I can just see the effect it can have on people. Yeah, it's quite a, a simple concept, but I think one of the reasons that Are You Okay has really grown is that it is so powerful if it's asked, you know, in a genuine way and deep with a a mindset of uh, care and compassion that really makes a massive difference. You know, I know, for example, when I went through my long-term horrific depressive episode, you know, just having my parents' support and, you know, also reminding me of, um, you know, times in the past when I was really great. And uh, it's also nice to be reminded of that because when you are in a bad place, you just tend to think and recall everything that's not great. Yeah, it's very it's very easy when you get to that point, isn't it, Graham? To uh, to not focus on the on the good things in life and on the great future that's ahead. So, again, I think I saw what a difference that made for me having people that did genuinely care, and that's something that I hope that as an organisation we can promote is having those conversations with our colleagues to make sure they are okay. Yeah, it's uh, it is just so important. When you think about the introvert, extrovert, you know, scale, Chris, not saying black and white, but what side of the, of the spectrum would you see yourself on that um, extrovert, introvert scale? So I would say I'd see myself on the introvert side, Graham. It's not always easy for me to have a conversation with new people. Um, sometimes it's a challenge. Um, but, again, in my role, and if you want to say, are you okay, you've got to get over those those fears and you've got to just ask the questions. Mm, yeah, definitely. How has that impacted the way that you lead, you know, being more on the introvert side of things? Where do you get your insights from? Where do you get uh, knowledge about new trends? How do you keep, uh, you know, ahead of the curve? That's a challenge. It's easy to get busy and to not um, focus on leadership and keeping ahead of the curve. So I try and read fairly widely, whether that's reading um, uh, the press to stay ahead of what's happening generally in business, but also industry and other publications, um, and also read uh, publications from people like Harvard on leadership. So I try and stay ahead there, don't always do a good job of it. Um, 
I try in terms of my style to be authentic authentic and fairly fairly humble. I'm sure I don't get that right all the time, but I also try and keep people really focused on objectives. But, but one of the other things that I do, Graham, is is talk on a regular basis to a small group of people that I've built up um, professional friendships with over the years. And w- we have regular phone calls. Um, they're people I know I can always pick up the phone to. They know where I'm at in their in my career and personally, and I know about them. So they're people I can ring up, and they will give me their perspective on things. I can ask them about a problem that I've got. They're not associated with my workplace, so mm. I can ask that without any fear. But I can call those people up and seek their advice or their counsel, or sometimes bend their ear about a problem I've got. And I think that's a really important way to help you look outside of what you're seeing in your own workplace. Yeah, it's really like your own little personal board of directors. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly right, Graham. Yeah. That's how I see it. it it's it, and it can you can talk to them about. And I do this quite regularly. In fact, a couple of them I have a regular every couple of week phone call with. Sometimes it's only five minutes, sometimes it's an hour. But I find that very helpful, particularly when you're in a leadership role. Sometimes you can't ask those questions or share those concerns with your peers. So it's great to have some outside people that you can do that with. Yeah, it's a really uh, a great example. And I've, I've done similar things as well in my life, you know, just having a group of people around that um, have the right mindset and they really want to, you know, help each other and, and to be helped. And uh, it's wonderful to get that, uh, you know, fresh insights. In fact, I, I have a ritual each month. Um, I have a old mate, Ted, we've worked together since we worked in Johnson & Johnson over 20 years ago. And once a month we catch up and go for a bushwalk, which we did this morning. And uh, yeah. it's just wonderful way to be out in nature, but also to talk about some of the things that are bothering us and to get that informal feedback. It's a, it's a great way to kill two birds with a one stone. Yeah, Graham, I agree. I think it's, I think it's really important, particularly as you take on senior roles, to have close confidence outside of your workplace that you can talk to. Very much so. When you think about, you know, whether it's books or videos or people that you've seen or read about, is there a particular thought leader or author that's had a really impact on you in terms of how you run a business? There's no one in particular. There's quite a range. And, of course, the course I did at Harvard gave me a lot of insights into how different leaders work. But certainly I like a lot of Jim Collins' principles in Good to Great, um, apply a lot of them, particularly particularly focusing on building the right team around you, which I think is the most important um, role you face when you start a new role. Um, but also uh, I, I'm quite keen on some other authors and I like reading autobiographies or biographies about people that have done really interesting things. So Shackleton's Way is a book that I really enjoyed, um, the story of, of how they, how he brought those 14 people out of what seemed like just a, an impossible position. How did he have the resilience to do that? So I really quite enjoy biographies or autobiographies or stories about how people have overcome great challenges, and that just shows me how important resilience is. Yeah, you raised Shackleton. It's the most extraordinary story, isn't it? I've also... Read, um, you know, one, I'm not sure if it's the same book, but a, a, a book about that whole predicament, you know, where they're yep. st- stuck in the ice going through winter and have their 
their ship be crushed by the ice and essentially sink. And, uh, you know, when you actually read about the various components of that, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it, it's, how it's they got out of it? It's an amazing story, and I love the bits about how they, you know, he, he realised important things to keep the men's morale up, like making sure they had tobacco. So they managed to ration their tobacco for that whole period that they're away and ration their alcohol. So it's just amazing that he managed to keep those people alive during that time and not just because of the difficult climatic conditions, but just from a morale point of view, how did he do that? So, you know, there's, there's just some great lessons to be learned when you read about some of those stories. Yeah, something else I thought was fantastic was he kept the negative people in his own tent. <laughs> so, That's right. So, so he really, you know, kept, uh, you know, uh, cut down the negative talk by having them so close to him. And I thought yeah. that was very interesting because it'd be very tempting, I think, to have them a long way away from you. But uh, he chose to do the opposite with great results. It was, there's some great leadership stories there. When we when you think about. Um, you know, people in the past, and you've mentioned Shackleton, are there any other people that you'd really love to have a dinner party with? They may have died already, but you've been really inspired by their lives and their lessons. Um, yeah, there has been. There's, there's a few people. I'd love to have dinner with my maternal grandfather. Um, he was quite a successful businessman but uh, died before I really got going in my career, so I never had many good conversations with him about business, and he was also a man that uh, was a very um, big philanthropist in terms of giving his own time and money to causes that he valued, so I'd love to talk to him and to ask him some questions. Um, I'd also love to talk to Nelson Mandela, Mandela again, resilience. How did he have the resilience to survive all those years and then um, come out of prison and become the leader that he became um, and not uh, seem to have the bitterness that you would think you would have. That's just incredible. Um, I'd also love to have dinner with one of those men whose funerals I attended and just ask them what more could have been done. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. Um, it's very, very tragic and I've also had uh, been close to some people that have um, died unnecessarily and, yeah, you often do think about that. It is uh, quite significant and having gone through those sort of personal experiences myself, on one hand I do understand it but on the other it just is such a, a waste and, you know, I guess one of the things that they say about those sort of circumstances is say, you know, a, a permanent um, action to a temporary problem. But the issue is that those people, and, and as I say, I speak from first-hand experience, you don't believe it's temporary. That's the thing. You think it's going to go forever. That's right. And you relating your own personal experience um, just highlights the fact that you can get into a place where there seems to be no other solution. But um, we've got to do our best to give people the opportunity to talk to us um, and to find another solution. Yeah, and that is why I'm, you know, just so passionate about Are You Okay? and also our, our We Care business because I, it, it is just fundamental to human well-being is we do feel a sense of connection and belonging to those around us. And I actually shared some research uh, this week, earlier this week, 
on LinkedIn about the incredible power of belonging, having that sense of belonging where there is connection, there is care, there is psychological safety. And it was a, a Harvard article which actually showed that if you can have a strong sense of belonging in individuals and in a team, it increases the results in job performance by 56% versus those that don't feel they belong. So what used to be considered as soft skills really is hard skills in this, uh, you know, very uncertain climate we now face ourselves with um, as we emerge from the pandemic. But the, the rate of change isn't going to slow, is it? No, Graeme, I don't, I don't think it is. Um, and one of the things that's been highlighted in our business uh, through our staff opinion surveys is the difficulty in providing recognition to people so that they do feel valued and part of the team. Mm. It's been, been quite hard again during COVID, but we can't use it as an excuse because you don't get to pop into someone's office and say, job well done. Um, and it's been a consistent theme in our staff feedback that we don't provide enough recognition. By way of example, you finish a project and it's been a tough project that might not have even made money, but you should go out of your way to thank the people that have stuck with it and got it mm. completed. Mm. So we're actually starting now. In fact, it's our first month, a formal recognition program in the business whereby any team member can nominate another team member or a team within the business for recognition. And when they do that, their manager and their relevant general manager will give them a phone call and, and thank them for what they've done. And then each month, the leadership team in the business will select a number of people to get a formal recognition award. And then we'll have each year, we'll have a recognition award for each of our shape values. So we'll then um, do that as a real celebration of great compliance and great exercise of our values and their behaviours on a yearly basis. So we're bringing in a formal mechanism to encourage people to recognise one another. And they're the sort of things that I think we need to do, Graham, to make sure that we do keep people engaged. Mm, yeah, very much. And that recognition, it can often be forgotten as you've just um, highlighted. But one of the, the books that really gave me some insight on that was a book called The Progress Principle by Therese Ombolay, who's, who's also a Harvard um psychologist and professor and she really looked at the things that had impact on people both positively and negatively in the book and, and then was able to then deconstruct it and she found her conclusion was the most motivating thing for information workers is knowing they're making progress on meaningful work uh, number one and yeah. uh, and and you know of course the big things have an impact, but it's just the little things as well. Little acknowledgements, micro acknowledgements have a massive impact as well. When, you know, you could have had a, you know, a tough day, but one thing was really good about it and, and you get that recognition. So that's a great thing to, uh, to really recognize and try to put into place. One of the things that has been fed back to me in my 360 reviews is that I don't provide enough positive feedback to my own team. Um, uh, sometimes it's easier to think the absence of negative feedback is positive feedback in its own right. So that's something that I really work on. But I was discussing it with one of my friends who runs a retail business with a lot of staff 
um, you know, how do you recognise those staff? And he said that he would make 20 phone calls a week to staff to recognise them for a job well done. It might have been that they'd won the store sales competition for the week or for the day or that they exhibited great values. So I think they're the sort of things that we need to do to recognise people and make them feel part of the team. And that was a, that was a great example to me that I need to do more. Yeah, wonderful. Well, it's been just fantastic uh, catching up, Chris. I really, you really walked the talk on creating that culture of care and, you know, to the fact that you've, you know, relaunched values to make it focus number one in terms of the S for safety and health. So wonderful to see how you put that into action. One final question. If you, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self if you had the chance to go back and share what you've come to know and believe? Um, Graham, I think that I would say trust your instincts better, Chris. Move more quickly to get the right people around you and then care for them. Mm. Mm. A wonderful reflection. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure to catch up to today, Chris. I really appreciate your time and um, and and the fact that you're walking the talk on having this culture of care and the culture of high performance. Thanks very much. Pleasure, Graham. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.